passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll kind of take it in two different sections. Beginning in verse 1, the author said, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So basically, he's giving them a warning not to fall short, to don't miss, don't miss this opportunity to be in God's rest. Verse 2, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So they, who we'll talk about in a moment, they didn't have this faith in order to enter into God's rest. We'll talk about that shortly. Verse 3, Now we who have believed entered that rest just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is just the first part of the passage. So Hebrews, it's kind of a complex book. I mean, it's actually a pretty straightforward message that the counterintuitive, the countercultural way of Jesus is way more superior, it's way better than any other way, any other means of living your life. Jesus is superior. But the actual language, the actual words and phrases, the writing, the references, the symbols, those can be kind of complex, kind of difficult to follow at times. So as usual, each section will have a little bit of homework, a little bit of background, and since it's Hebrews, you're really going to have to stay with me this morning. I'm just telling you up front. So these first three verses of our passage, they're talking about this promise, this hope of entering into God's rest. And so what is God's rest? Because it sounds amazing, right? I mean, I'm a fan of just regular rest, like a nap with five kids. I don't get a lot of regular rest. So this idea of like God's rest sounds amazing to me. But I want us to think about God's rest as God's presence with us. It's whenever and wherever God's kingdom comes. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God's rest is when we get an answer to the thing that we pray every single week. God's rest is where there is love and forgiveness and grace and compassion and justice and righteousness. In the biblical narrative at the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve and God, there was God's rest. God was present with humanity in a really significant way. Uh, Adam and Eve, they talked with God. They walked with God. There was a communion with God. There was love with God. There was love for one another. There is rest. There is God's rest. But that doesn't mean that nothing was expected of them. God's rest is not a vacation. God's rest is not a nap, like I mentioned before. In this time of rest, there was work to do. There was actually stuff that needed to be done. It's called the creation mandate. This rest of enjoying God's presence is being invited to actually extend and create and to um, promote the things that God cares about. And then sin enters the world. And that rest is interrupted. The original peace and wholeness and shalom and completeness that was set up in the garden that God intended It's no longer as God intended. There's now brokenness. There's guilt. There's shame. There's there's remorse and regret. There's now worry. This is not God's rest. God is present, 
but the relationship is broken. At the end of the story, again, there's going to be God's rest. There's going to be God's presence with us. We're told that at the very end of the story, that God says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Neither will there be any more pain, for the older things will all pass away. We will again have God's presence fully. God's rest fully. Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? But this is important. God's rest, God's presence with us can even be experienced now amidst all the chaos that we create for, them, for ourselves. It's clear. When God walked this earth, when God's presence was literally with us in flesh and blood, Jesus was very clear that his desire for people to experience God's rest, God's presence. He wanted that now, not just at a later date. Listen to Jesus's invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Watching the news these days, coming out of COVID, is anybody weary? Is anybody heavy burdened? Listen to what his invitation is. He says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does rest for your soul sound good to anybody else? It sounds really good to me. So God's rest is not laziness. It's not boredom. It's not sitting on our hands. God's rest is actually being talked about in this passage, is God's presence with us as we join in bringing and creating beauty and reconciliation and forgiveness and well-being to others. God's rest that was with us fully at the beginning of the story and will be with us fully at the end of the story is actually available to us right now. And so the writer of Hebrews, I sure hope you're still with me, the writer of Hebrews says, and this is my paraphrase, that the offer to enter into God's rest, he says, that still stands. That's still available. Jesus was clear on that. The offer of God's presence, it still stands, but he says, don't be, he says, be very careful, don't miss it. God's rest is offered to us now, just like it was offered to, and he says, them, back in the day. Who is they? Well, scholars are pretty unanimous on this, that the they, it would have been the Hebrew people, it would have been their ancestors, They, the Jewish people, were invited to enter into God's rest after years of pain and chaos and restlessness as they were slaves to the Egyptian people. They were invited to enter into God's rest with an invitation to enter into this promised land to enjoy God's presence in a significant way, a land which would have flown with milk and honey, as we know. But that didn't happen. Not right away, at least. And when it did, they looked a lot more like Egypt than what God intended. And so what they did was they toured the desert for 40 years. And according to the author of Hebrews, why did God's people end up wandering around in a desert for 40 years as opposed to stepping into God's rest that was offered to them? Was it because they weren't following God's law? No, it seems like they they were. Was it because God still had something to teach them? That doesn't seem to be the case. 
Was it because God wanted some 40-year, one-generation lifespan to go from being slaves to learning how to live as like truly human? That's not the case either. No, the writer of Hebrews says they wandered in the desert for 40 years because they didn't have faith. So the author of Hebrews is saying, back in the day, your ancestors, they had no faith in God. And so because of that, they didn't enter into God's rest. He's saying, do not let that happen to you. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on God's rest. Don't miss out on his presence, on love and joy and peace and all the other fruit of the Spirit because you just lack faith. For God's rest, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to, in order to experience God's grace and peace and shalom and wholeness, you don't have to earn anything. All you need to do is exercise faith. But what does that faith look like? What does the faith look like that is required to actually enter into God's grace that is available, that the offer still stands? Well, J.I. Packard, he writes in his book, Growing in Christ, he says this. He says, when people are asked what they believe in or what they put their faith in, they give not just different answers, but he says they give all different sorts of answers. For example, he says, some people might say, I believe in UFOs and With some of the headlines over the past few years, that's not funny anymore. That's crazy, legit. I believe in UFOs. That means I think UFOs are real. Another person will say, I believe in democracy. That means I think democratic principles are just and they're fair and they're beautiful. What does it mean when Christians say that we have faith in God? It means, J.R. Packer says, far more than saying that you believe in UFOs. Or, dem- or democracy. He says, I can believe in a UFO without actually seeing one. He says, someone could say they believe in democracy without actually casting a vote. He says, in, case, in cases like these, belief is a matter of intellect. It's a matter of what goes on in your mind. But he says, when we recite our creeds as a church... The opening words are, I believe in God. And we are using an original intention in an original phrase coined by the New Testament writers, literally meaning, I am submitting my life to the ways of God. It's way more than intellect. That is to say, more than just believing certain truths about God, we actually believe what God is about and we care about what God cares about. Biblically speaking, to say you have faith in God is living out a commitment to God and in union with God. Tim Hughes, in his book, Down to Earth, he gives another popular illustration of what faith looks like, the faith that is required in order to enter into this God's rest and experience God's presence. He says, one of his favorite stories of revealing authentic faith is the story of Charles Blondin, a French tightrope walker. Many of you have probably heard this illustration before. He says that in June of 1859, he did his most famous stunt where he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. So he's a brave man, maybe not a smart man. And he did this several times, and he did it in different ways. Sometimes he was on stilts, sometimes he rode a bike. Sometimes he did it at night, blindfolded, and every time he did this, they said a larger crowd would gather around each time. And he says at one performance, the crowd was ooing and aahing as uh, Blondin um, 
he carefully walked across the tightrope over the Niagara Falls, pushing a wheelbarrow filled with a huge sack of potatoes. And everyone was all impressed by it. And then at one point, he asked the crowd, he says, do you believe that I could actually carry a person in this wheelbarrow across the tightrope over the Niagara Falls? And the crowd enthusiastically, with their minds, they said, yes, absolutely. We believe that you can do that better than anybody else. They had faith in him, right? In their minds? They said, yeah, you can do that. But that's not biblical faith. Okay, Blondin said, who wants to be the first person to get into the wheelbarrow? That's more laughter than I thought. I thought you would have heard this example before. They said they believed, but no one was actually willing to get in the wheelbarrow. That's not biblical faith. Getting into the wheelbarrow, actually submitting to the way of God, is the biblical faith that's required to experience God's rest and God's presence. And faith in God brings rest because it brings an end to the idea that you have to earn God's approval, that you have to do things to deserve God to give you favor. Believing in God is putting faith in God's grace. The good news of grace insists that God doesn't wait to offer us rest. God doesn't wait to offer us his presence And once we get our stuff all cleaned up and we get our act together. The good news of grace is that God meets us and offers us rest in the middle of all the chaos we create. We read about a lot of chaos, right? We create a lot of chaos, right? God offers us rest in the midst of that. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't miss it. God's rest, it's available. Do not let this opportunity pass you by. So the passage continues in verse 4. It says, For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above it says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not get Uh, did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not burden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates between, uh, even in dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, so Sabbath. There's a lot there. But the author of, I told you, you're going to have to stick with me for a little bit. 
The author of Hebrews is now linking experiencing God's rest with the Old Testament idea of Sabbath. And make no mistake, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the idea of this day set apart for worship and rest, the Sabbath day is a really, really big deal. In fact, there's a good argument that people in the Old Testament might have considered it maybe possibly the most important commandment. Why would they have done that? Because the commandment about observing a Sabbath day once a week, of all the Ten Commandments, it's the one that is expanded on the most. Observing the Sabbath day is mentioned more often in the Old Testament than any other of the other Ten Commandments. It's mentioned over a hundred times. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments which God clearly gave before he gave all the other of the Ten Commandments. So he got ahead of himself on this one. The Sabbath day is the only day on the Jewish calendar besides the Day of Atonement, which is the great high holy day, when people were restricted from working. And the prophets, the people who actually knew and cared about the things that God cared about, that seemed bright. That was really bright. My paper became blue all of a sudden. But the prophets, the people who actually cared about the things that God cared about, they often would harshly rebuke the people of Israel for failing to keep the Sabbath and for going on with status quo and their typical routines on the Sabbath day. But then when you hear about Jesus, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath, but he often pushed against all the rules and regulations that religious people put on the Sabbath. He would, um, you know, take wheat and rub it in his fingers. That was considered work. He healed people. He healed someone who had a shriveled hand. He healed a crippled person, suggesting that the Sabbath is also for healing and for freedom. So we see Jesus doing God's work. According to Jesus, it's not just a day to sit on your hands. So what do we do with the Sabbath? Do we rest and worship only? Or is it a day that we join in God's work like Jesus did? Well, Delina Price McFall, I think she's a wonderful person to talk about this because she writes about coming from a Christian tradition that observed the Sabbath day very seriously. She says she recalls all the work that was put into the day before the Sabbath so that she could actually complete a restful day on the Sabbath. She says, so the day before the Sabbath, she said it was doubly unrestful. She said her home, her car had to be cleaned, errands had to be run, the food had to be prepared, some people would iron their dress clothes for church the next day. She says they worked really, really hard on Saturday to make sure they had to give the idea that they weren't working on Sunday. She said we're con- we were constantly reminded at a young age of John chapter 14, verse 13, which God, where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. She says we interpret this as meaning if you love God, keep my Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath day. She says her upbringing, in short, taught her how to work for her salvation. She says she knows what it felt like deep in her soul to wonder if she could ever measure up and make it to heaven. She wondered deep in her soul, am I trying hard enough? Could I try harder? Was I resting enough on my Sabbath? I wonder if anybody 
in here, any of us could relate to these types of questions. She said later in life, she learned that God's love and care and design for her life actually had nothing to do with what she did and everything to do with what Jesus had done. She started having faith in grace. She writes about letting go of an earn-your-keep relationship with God. Remember that that's what the author of Hebrews is saying that is required to experience God's rest. It's to have faith in God. When she let go of all the rule following and she started following and she started understanding God's favor for her, she says, that's when I finally experienced God's rest. And she said that this rest, God's rest, had nothing to do with her special day or a break in her regular routine. She says as she transitioned away from the Sabbath as a day where she could not do anything and she needed to make sure that everyone knew she wasn't doing anything, and she put in all this work and this prep work the day before in order to show others that she looked like she was resting on the Sabbath day. She said, I was no longer convinced that Christians are bound to a set day or sitting on our hands. Because remember, Jesus didn't sit on his hands on the Sabbath either. He joined God in what God wanted to do. She says, according to the New Testament, which is our testament, Jesus the cross, grace, not a day, is where we find our rest. He provides rest, not because we do something different on a certain day of the week. He provides rest for those who have faith in him 24-7. She says, for more than 30 years, my week was bookend by the Sabbath. And I think this is the great point of what she says. She says, for her, growing up, Sabbath was more than a day. There was an aura to it. She said there were sights, there were sounds, there were routines and smells associated with this sacred time. She remembers um, one, one person, uh, one of her scho Jewish scholars that she read about, calling the Sabbath day for her was what he referred to, it was a palace in time. And she says, I can understand how people continue to be attracted to that. She says, but I knew the work involved in preparing to rest. She says, and from experience, I knew a weekly day of rest would not eliminate busyness, an addiction to work, or a restless heart. She says, the cure for those things was found in Jesus offering rest and an end to earning and an end to trying to deserve God's favor. She asked, what could be better what could be sweeter than having a palace in time once a week for a day? And her answer is this, living in a palace of time every single minute of every single day. Because that's the rest that Jesus offers us. That's what God's rest is all about. She says, for me, it wasn't just about a day anymore. And so believers in Jesus... Whether or not you honor a day, a holy day for rest and worship and keep it to that, or if you're like on my Sabbath day, like every day, I am going to join God's movement in the world. Either way, it's great. Do as you please. But remember this, anybody can take a day off, but true rest is available and the offer still stands for all of us. May we not miss it.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.